I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile the troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? What do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. Today I'm going to be meeting with my guest, David Almeida. David's a clinical director for Iron Renaissance right here in Boca Raton. I worked with David for about a year and a half when I was a primary therapist at Cairn. And he's a really interesting guy and a great therapist. Particularly, I enjoy his group work. That's a lot of what I wanted to talk to him about today. From the outset of working there, it was evident that he was very well respected by the management and administration of the program. He was respected and well-liked by the patients. He was very popular among his his clients. And he was also really well-respected and well-liked by his peers, many of whom some of the, the younger therapists actually like emulated his his group style because he was so effective in being able to facilitate group therapy in a substance use disorder treatment center and his capacity to kind of move people and evoke insight and get people to look at and talk about really uncomfortable things. And you know, when you try to describe what what was it that was so great about this guy, what did he do that was so compelling? I'm thinking about one example in particular where I co-facilitated a group with him, and there was a client who had participated in what I would call some exploitive behavior with a sober support. So you have a sober support from the community, takes the person out on pass, they're supposed to go for coffee or something like that and client seizes this as an opportunity to order you know the most expensive meal on the menu which was paid for by the sober support who was taking them out on pass so it was a really kind of awkward imposition that he put this person into and it was a real miss as far as sort of taking advantage of somebody's generosity and where this type of behavior could be particularly problematic in the progress of someone who's recovering from a substance use disorder being treated for it. If you don't have the social skills to appropriately reciprocate relationships, you can't get along with people in the correct ways and attract appropriate support for yourself. You're going to be at odds with people. You're going to have difficulty developing relationships with other sober people. You're going to have difficulty getting along in whatever transitional housing you're living in. You're going to have difficulty managing your relationship with family members. You're going to have difficulty with jobs and co-workers and bosses and things like that. So dealing with the personality aspect, especially for people who have some form of characterological disorder, some kind of 
personality disorder traits. It's a very, very important part of the therapeutic process. And for uh, most people who have long-term sobriety will, will agree with that, that part of getting sober is to adjust those interpersonal relationship dynamics and learn how to form more healthy connections with other people. And so here's this young man who, in my impression, probably had some exploitive behaviors and uh, personality dynamics that contributed to that behavior. And David had to challenge them in group about that, which is a very tricky business. Because if you amp the intensity of an interaction like that too high with other people bearing witness to it, you're going to kind of lose the patient. You're going to embarrass him in front of his peers, and you're going to lose him. They're going to become reactive, or they're just going to shut down. They're not going to really hear the message uh, because they're just going to go to a place of shame or embarrassment because the ego often can't tolerate that level of challenging. You have to manage that sort of skillfully. And that's something that not everybody can do. Amp up the tone of the group to a certain level of tension and keep it there without kind of tipping it over to this level where the interaction is not managed. You know, where people become dysregulated, where someone's going to walk out of the group, storm out and slam the door and this sort of thing. And he had this way of challenging this young man and just kind of holding that tension that was so masterful. It was that sort of gentle prodding, but with intention, that kind of kept that tension rising, but it never crescendoed at a level that was too high to be tolerated. It was really quite brilliant how he did it. Because it was, oh, you got the, uh, what'd you order at the restaurant? I, well, I, uh, I got the steak and egg omelet. The steak and egg omelet, huh? Wow. Did you get hash browns with that? Yeah, I got hash browns. Wow, hash browns, huh? You got some hash browns with the steak and egg omelet. What else did you get? Well, it came with uh, a couple pieces of uh, French, French toast. French toast? Wow. Wow, what, did you go with the maple syrup? Did you put ketchup on that? Did you get hot sauce? What'd you get to drink? Did you just get coffee? Did you get juice too? And it was just the way that he kind of held that tone and that tension. And it's sort of like an exaggerated way to put emphasis on the fact that what he did, it was inappropriate, you know, to kind of bring attention to the fact that the behavior was inappropriate. But he did it in a way that was not shameful, but it was uncomfortable. And anyone who was listening to this interaction was going to feel that tension and therein created an opportunity for discussions and discussions about the behavior and you know the ability to kind of challenge the client on that and get him thinking about what it was that he was doing and he did it in such a way that really not everyone can do as particularly when you're dealing with people who might be personality disordered and might not be able to tolerate that level of challenging that level of uh, confrontation.
Ladies and gentlemen, the people's champion, David Almeida, <laughs> clinical director at Karen Renaissance Institute right here in Boca Raton. David, welcome to the Good Counsel Podcast. Thank you, Eric. It's good to be here. All right, man. Thanks for coming out. Yeah, so talking a little bit about in the introduction of you and your group style, I know you're humble about these things, but it kind of made you uh, a little bit of a legend around there. And you are a person who I think influenced a lot of the younger therapists, sort of establishing their style of how they do this. And a lot of them had co-facilitated with you. And I think it's pretty easy to be enamored and drawn into that when you see someone who's really skilled and the impact that it has on clients to think to yourself, I really want to do it the way he's doing it. You were just very well respected at a place where really all of the clinicians were very good. So to have the respect or to stand out among that group of people, not an easy thing to accomplish. Everyone there was working really hard because the level of expectation was so high. You were eventually promoted into the clinical director's spot. There was something about that that really made me feel good because the idea that you were going to be providing guidance to these younger therapists, some of whom were you know, still working towards licensure and stuff, they were going to be receiving guidance from you and they were going to be learning from you. I thought that was like a really cool thing. It just seemed very appropriate. It seemed like just a great fit in a way to evolve. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, I think... I think with the group approach, you had said it in the intro about intention. And I think generally speaking, there's intention. Um, but when you mentioned about kind of humble about these things, a part of the reason that in a way coming on here and talking about the group facilitation process, you know, it's, I think it's helpful to, to learn myself around what you experienced. Group, group is, you know, although you're in there with patients, you don't often get to co-facilitate with other therapists. So when people, and when you mention my style and group, it's something that I'm generally aware of, but I think oftentimes, and this is not being humble, that it's seen as that there's a, a specific intention that there's, you know, not so far to say that there's a script with it, but that there's more intention than it actually is. I think in some of the groups that I had with you, it's more of, you know, you start riding the wave and the wave takes you where the wave is going to take you. The group's going to take you where the group's going to take you. The conversation's going to... And I think oftentimes there's this uh, belief that the group facilitator is trying to get the patient to somewhere, to some insight. And sometimes there is, but I'd say the majority of the time there isn't. Um, and, you know, I think that I think is uh, something that I think unearned is attributed to some of my group facilitation is that there's some end goal that I magically get someone to. And I promise you, I promise you there's, there's not, I'm riding the wave along with the patients in the group that sometimes we get to that place of insight of, you know, breakthrough of awareness of relating and in, in all the ways that group I find so, so important, but sometimes there are, are duds and, um, you know, I'm sure there are people that have sat in on some groups where they leave saying, what was that guy doing in there? So let me ask you this question. 
because you can pay attention to any number of things that are going on. You get a room with, you know, some 12, 13 people, and we could point to any of them and, you know, have them share on any particular topic. There's so much going on with all of these different individuals. But what's the value system in that that kind of drives the wave? I think oftentimes the wave, uh, from my standpoint, is curiosity. Um, I think in the example you gave around the patient who <clears throat> went out and had their sober support, who probably made $10 an hour, who graciously was going to pick up someone in treatment and take them out for a cheap breakfast and found a check for $50. I think certainly that's a behavior that's obvious that needs to be challenged. But I think at the core of it, I'm genuinely curious about the thought process of a person that that would do that. And clearly in understanding their thought process, we will be able to identify some distortions in their thought process that likely will need to change if they're going to have a remotely successful life or relationships within. So through my career is just oftentimes I feel like I'm just very interested and curious to understand how people tick. That's interesting. You know, what's interesting about it, as I'm listening to you say, is like, he's really not starting at the end. There's really not an agenda to it. It's not that you're coming with an answer and hoping that the client can guess what it is, but that you're really just sort of, there's an anomaly that occurred in front of you or sure. someone's behavior. Yeah. And you, right. it's like, hey, I'd like to know more about this. I'd like to know more about what you were thinking while you were ordering, you know, all this stuff on the menu. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know what? they should probably know what they were thinking too. And I think that's the part. And the group, people in the group should probably know what he was thinking or she was thinking because they've likely done similar things. And so to get to wherever that was, to understand what they were thinking when they put this poor soul in a position to pay $50, which is, you know, 10% of their income, um, is helpful information to know for the person, for me trying to help the person and point out how they likely will need to change. And then the group that is likely relating in certain ways that is going to help them ultimately. That's really interesting too, because you're not coming from a place of presumption. You're not coming from a place of, I already have the answer. I just need you to get to it. But you're coming from a place of really what would be like genuine investigation, genuine curiosity. Like we're going to, this is an anomaly that occurred and we're going to explore it together. And hopefully you and these other people here in this room are going to kind of like figure this out. And there are many times where other people's feedback is insight or feedback that didn't occur to me. You know, so in this, in this exploration, in this investigation, other people are picking up on evidence that I didn't, see either and it's contributing to this ultimate outcome of understanding you know i think generally it's one of two things either i wasn't aware of how i impacted somebody negatively and i did or i don't i don't care that i impacted that person negatively it's all about me either one is valuable information to have gotcha it's it's interesting to hear this because when you see something with that level of intensity, I think at the moment for me, there was a natural inclination to believe that this is intentional because there's such intensity behind it. 
we must for sure know where this is meant to be going. No idea where it's going. It's funny to hear that. Yeah. Glad I asked a question, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that probably is what makes it so pure, right? Is that you're following and keeping this level of tension and intensity, but it comes from a place of genuine curiosity and not of, it really is not meant to be shameful. It really is not meant to be a punitive. It's a genuine place of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the intensity that you probably f feel is, I don't, I believe that most don't want to find it. You know, most don't want to figure that out. Because again, either way, either I hurt somebody or I affected someone negatively and wasn't aware and now I feel badly about it or I don't care. I don't want that exposed. So I think what the intensity is, is this unwillingness to stray from this. And most people want to deflect or divert or, you know, do all these different things to take, to take us off the scent and i think the intensity is the unwillingness to we're gonna we're gonna find out what this is all about and there's really no option to to stray from that you're not going to distract us that's really interesting and that's i guess what i picked up on because it's palpable and there's that feeling because it's the slight rising of anxiety of an uncomfortable conversation and i felt it and it reached a certain level and it just stayed at that level. And I think I've seen a lot of other people try to do similar things where you don't hold it at this level. It either kind of like sputters out because like you said, there's a distraction or somebody switches topic or somebody else seeks attention or something and we lose, we lose the tension, we lose the moment. Or it kind of, peaks at a level like an amplitude that's not tolerable and there's some explosive reaction somebody storms out of the group and they slam the door or just shuts down completely you just you, they're not even holding eye contact anymore and i that's the magic of it because i see a lot of people try you know people are going to listen to that this and i know a lot of them are going to say oh that's what's so special that that's what i do look man i've been doing group therapy since probably like 1995. I, I've co-facilitated groups with so many different people. I can't remember all the names and, and where it happened. And there are moments that you see brilliance and different things or, you know, a, a lack of acumen. Um, and, you know, I think it's the art form of it that there's so many different ways and so many different nuances to take group therapy. I think that that it's uh, like almost like an expression of oneself of how I see this interaction and what I'm actually doing. It's so way beyond just like a technical skill. And you, you have to have experience with it to, to full, truly understand that, I think. But I've seen so many different people try to do these things. And, um, and when you see something exceptional, especially when you've done it a lot, you know you're looking at something exceptional, like the ability to hold that tension. And it was, it was interesting to me. I recognized it as very not typical. That, so, I mean, at least, at least from my understanding, that what you're pointing out is, is I would attribute to experience <clears throat> because <clears throat> there have been many times, probably more so earlier in my group facilitating career, I didn't push enough and or I pushed too much and I had that person storm out of the room or I had them shut down and I think 
in terms of being able to teach that, I don't know that there is a way for me to say, well, this is the exact feel or tension, as you call it, to where you have to maintain it. I think that is just from, that's from, you know, breaking the tension, you know, or not getting enough tension and not getting the outcome for over a period of time. I mean, if you think about group, you know, group therapy where we worked, it it's how many hours you think about how many hours a week or it was you know we're talking 10 hours of group therapy potentially a week for 10 years of of doing that it's a lot of hours of in group and when i think about group therapy i don't even know that i think about group therapy in a substance use facility setting you know i often think about group therapy out in an outpatient setting. You know, the the techniques around group therapy in that setting are way different than what you need to bring into group therapy, walking into a male gender group in a, in a substance use facility with 15, you know, 15 patients that don't want to be there, that are tired, that are angry, and having 90 minutes in this group to try to keep them engaged that is not easy and you take your lumps you take your lumps for a while before you can get to the point of being comfortable walking into that 12:30 group and have to sit there until 2 p.m. to you know try to get the group to be productive it's it's hard and it's intimidating it's funny because like i'm in private practice now so the majority of my my time is spent with people individually and the more you do that, you kind of come to miss that moment of what am I going to do? How am I going to hold a moment here? How am I going to hold a subject matter? So that grief and loss group that I do at Karen Still, I look forward to it because it's a different thing. And you kind of reclaim a little bit of that same kind of magic of what's going to happen here and can we move this in a way that is impactful you know, and you and you can see impact, and that's that's what's exciting about it. Because when when there's an interaction that's facilitated between it's it's kind of like leading a, a little bit of an orchestra. Mm-hmm. You, yes. know? Yes. you know, you yes. know, this is where you you're creating impact or people to be impactful to each other, and it's really uh, a dynamic thing. And so, having seen so many different people do it in so many different ways. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's something that you come to appreciate, especially now that it's like so much less of a part of what, you know, what what I, what I get to do. You look forward to it, you know. Mm, you do, you do. And I think there's still, even even now, I'll do, I'll do groups, you know, from time to time. Every other week, I'll, I'll fill in and do a group. And there's still a level of, call it anxiety around it. Because, again, because you don't know. You don't know what you're walking into. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't know if you're going to walk into a mob of people who are going to be disgruntled and really try to spend 90 minutes being very critical of the process or you or, and I've heard, I've heard a lot of um, interviews around stand-up comedians and whenever they talk about the anxiety or the fear around being on stage uh, for a certain amount of time and bombing. I remember, I very much connect to 
the groups where like it, it, 10 minutes in you are bo- like, you're bombing the group you know the group is now on your case about something and you have an hour and 20 minutes left and the feeling of that where maybe in stand-up comedy you could just walk off stage you are expected to sit in that group for 90 minutes no matter how good it's how disrespectful the patients are being towards you no matter what and i have had a few experiences where are memorable that stand out to me that i think after those experiences i said to myself I got to figure this out to avoid ever having to experience that ever again. I got to figure out how to engage the patients, how to keep them interested. You know, it's not entertaining them because you're doing work, but how to keep them engaged and attentive. And, and that's hard. It's really hard. It's not this, you know, uh, internally motivated outpatient therapy group, which I love too. I think group, group therapy, as you said, I mean, if there's a passion in in working in this field, it is for me with group. I love working in group. I have an outpatient group that I've had for over a decade. It is a different beast. I go in there and we do work in there. And uh, but walking into an, an inpatient group is something where you have to you have to come prepared. <laughs> like you just do. Well, using your uh, comedian analogy. It's a tough room. <laughs> it's yeah. You're never walking into a, a good room. Like you're always follow. You're always like you're following lunch often in the afternoons, which is you know it's a tough act to follow when you're following lunch for these patients who are tired and angry and they ate too much. For, they ate two frozen pizzas for lunch, and you have ninety minutes with them. It's like great. I get to go on after Chappelle. <laughs> <laughs> right, lunch is Chappelle. So sure, this is gonna be great. <laughs> And, and on the other end of it, on the I mean, some of the worst experiences have been those where you leave feeling like maybe I should just change fields because that was just so terrible. But, you know, nine out of 10 of the most powerful therapeutic experiences that I've ever had have happened in group, hands down. Yeah. Not the individual sessions, you know, not the family sessions. To me, the, the ones that evoke so much emotion that such powerful breakthroughs that I say that was the moment that this person shifted. Almost all of them happened in group. I think so. Because when you talk about like the energy that we bring and so much pressure that we put on ourselves, I think when you, you go with that, that tension that we talked about before that you, you do where everything is so deliberate and we're not going to stray off course, we're going to hold this and create even that, that it's uncomfortable for people. But the one thing that's not lost, right? The one thing that the clients are going to look at you and they're going to see that it's authentic is that you're coming from a place of genuine inquiry. Like, obviously, this is important to you. And when we transmit that to them, that, hey, this is really important to me. Like, I'm going to keep on asking these uncomfortable questions because I really want to know. You can kind of wake up people who might not really be that into what's going on. It's sort of like that gradual kind of like gravitation over, hey, what the hell's going on over here, man? Like, this is, this is different than what I expected. I thought I was going to take this one off. Right, just kind of like right. hang in the background while somebody else did some stuff and I'll think about whatever. And now all of a sudden 
I'm engaged in the conversation. Not only am I engaged in the conversation, but I might even come to find out that this is actually really relatable and that I've felt like I've been this person before. And I actually have something to contribute to it. Yeah, no, I think I think that's, you know, because I'm sure a lot of the patients are sitting there saying like, why are we here in a substance use treatment facility and I'm in group and we're spending, an hour, and I've heard this feedback, I'm spending an hour on this guy's order for breakfast. Like, why are we doing this? It seems like a waste of time. And that I love that question because then it allows us to explore, well, this is why it's not. This is, this, this is exactly what we're taking out of this process. But yeah, I'm sure you were like, we're talking about steak and eggs for an hour. You know that <laughs> I, I knew what you wanted to do. Right. Because we recognize the behavior and recognize how not being willing to go there. It actually is a disservice to the client who has the entitled action because it's like I spent eight minutes explaining in the, um, in the intro Stuff like that is really important because these characterological, uh, these maladaptive characterological be- driven behaviors that equate to me being really selfish or me being really entitled, uh, that's a barrier to sobriety because part of having s- supports in the community, like when you leave the controlled environment of a treatment center, you're no longer, you're out there in the world at a transitional housing or in AA meetings or at a job, you're no longer dealing with people who are paid employees that, you know, these are these are people who are living their life. And if you create that you are not able to reciprocate a relationship or that you are not an interesting person to be with or, you know, because it's one-sided, it's, you know, you show up with an energy of, Every time I hang out with this person, it's about what they're going to get from me. Yeah, they take advantage of me. Yeah, you're not going to have friends. You're gonna. It's going to be a very lonely experience, and that's gonna. That's you realize behind that. You feel disconnected. You're not. You're not going to stay sober that way. And so these things are actually really important. And you know, that interpersonal dynamic, because when a person's like active in a substance use disorder, there's such a lack of awareness of how I'm connected. I'm so disconnected from people. I don't even realize what I'm doing. And I have to relearn all that and I have to like kind of dig in and gain insight into it. And if I'm in a therapeutic environment where the people who's, who are facilitating these clinical services, they're too uncomfortable with this level of tension to ask me really hard questions about my actions. You know, we're, we're going to skip this uncomfortable interaction about the exploitation and talk about, you know, some kind of more benign relapse prevention activity. Not that that's unimportant, but everyone's seen and heard it before. And you don't need me to do that. You can you could probably watch a lot of that stuff on a video or read, you know, a Gorski book on on that. You don't need me to help facilitate the transaction in which that insight is delivered. You can get that somewhere else. This conversation, this is something you probably can only have here. I th- I'd like to think that you know, once that process gets to a certain awareness of, uh, you know, that I take advantage of people, uh, you know, hopefully, like you just said, you know, it go it jumps to, well, how lonely are you? And the answer almost always in this setting is extremely, 
to have them understand that, well, maybe these behaviors are contributing to these feelings. Maybe, you know, when you say like, I don't, I don't have a lot of friends, you know, maybe then you could understand that these behaviors are contributing to that and that and getting there, that awareness is really where it's at is really what's going to be helpful for them. Yeah, it's very well said. And, and that's compassionate because you're actually getting a person to this idea that you're not a bad human being. You are not inherently bad. You really shouldn't be ashamed of yourself. You have a series of maladaptive behaviors and this thing that you're doing is really not working for you anymore. You really got to find a different way of hanging out with people if you want to have people around you. And this is probably like a root cause situation. How long have you been doing this for? You know, milking people in this way. (laughs) Well, you know, probably a while. And so that's where we kind of, they, they can learn like, oh, wow, there's a root cause to this. I can actually learn how to do something different and show up in some different way. And now people are going to want to hang out with me. There's freedom in that. Yeah, there is. And, and, there, and there's, you know, there's so much value in the investigative process that you mentioned. Because walking in and saying, hey, Johnny, you ordered the steak and eggs, and it's probably contributing to your loneliness and your inability to connect with people is not going to is not going to connect it's not going to fit there's something about the process of getting there that allows number one the patient to receive it um to not have the walls go up um you know it's like you're chiseling away at the walls as you're getting there to allow them to finally have that awareness and by the way johnny probably has had people milk off of him and doesn't see himself as that person that has milked off of him for all these years or in the past and he's now doing it or he's you know and people see him as that and you know that although that does probably lead to some feelings of shame and guilt that wow i'm doing this to people it's productive it's necessary now you can work from that and i think that was the point like what you just said because you can't start there You can't start with, hey, here's your behavior and here's what's wrong about it. And this is why we need you to take a harder look at this and change. Because if you come with that, that actually sounds like judgment. That sounds punitive. They've probably already experienced that from their parents or whatever social institutions. They've their experiences there. And that is just judgment and shaming. And especially if you're you don't have a lot of ego strength there's not going to be an ability to even tolerate or look at this from any kind of introspective, you know, perspective where you're saying, Oh, wow, maybe I do need to take a look at this. It's just going to feel like hurt and we're either going to lash out or we're going to shut down. And so the fact that you were able to kind of find this different amplitude, right? This, this different wavelength that's tense and uncomfortable but it's not aggressive. It's not, it's not up over the top and it's not so sedate and gentle that I'm getting a pass, but that we're just going to have like an uncomfortable look at this thing. That was it. That's where I was looking at that. And, and uh, I was like, we're going to, we're going to get there. And this is, this is a great style of doing things. It's doing it in a, in kind of a cool way that, um, you know, you've seen other people try to do similar things and, 
you lose in the distraction or can't hold this level of tension, it breaks and it escalates and we like lose control of the situation. You see, you've seen all manner of that. So that's what I, I kind of thought was cool. So it's interesting. I think you alluded to that there was an earlier point where there was bombing occurring. Where, where, like, you didn't start off here. You started off in some, some other place. How did you learn that this was the thing that kind of, this skill was going to be the thing that was going to put you over and make your group work so much more effective? Well, I, th- I mean, as you mentioned, you saw from some of the younger clinicians, you know, when I started, I mean, when I, when I started in, in the field, I started at a different facility where, you know, group, uh, group was almost all psychoeducational. It was an insurance-based program, um, you know. So I was going into group and doing a hour group on relapse prevention, or I was doing an hour group on the twelve steps, the twelve steps, and how <clears throat> it's important to do those. And when I got hired at at Renaissance, um, you know, it, it was it was a wake up call because I really came in. <clears throat> excuse me, with, um, you know, with some confidence in my ability to run group. Um, and when you go into a process group, what I had started doing was, like you said, started to try to be other therapists in the agency. And at that point, there was a lot of senior clinicians in, in the agency that had been there for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and, so taking on their styles, and I think some of the bombs were my attempts to take on a style that wasn't mine. Oh, that's amazing. You know, it's funny that you use the the comedian uh, reference because I've actually heard interviews with comedians like Mark Marin and uh, even Joe, Joe Rogan on their podcast talking about how at earlier points in their career, they tried to adopt the styles of other people and felt like they were sort of not being genuine, not, not, and that it was experience that taught everybody how to find their own voice. It's really interesting. Because the, again, the, it's the, the crowd, the, the crowd that you're performing with it, they pick up on inauthenticity. They, it, it's not, if I go in there and try to be Eric Bricker and in, in a group, the ability to sniff that out is so is so keen that it, it creates these huge problems and then they know they know and and um i think a lot of those experiences were because uh you know i would go in and try to you know be this person who was more confrontational or i'd be this person who was probably at that point more skillful <clears throat> to go in different directions than i would go in and i'd start the train in that direction and then have no ability to work with it um so I think through those experiences, getting to that point where I think a lot of us get to in a lot of different fields and areas of our lives where we just get to, I'm going to be me and create my what I'm comfortable with and what I see working. And I had to get to that point. It probably took you know a year of, you know, back, back then you would go in a group and there would be competing groups. There would be a gender group and, you know, the patients could either choose your group or choose someone else's group. And... Either you would get a, a group like walk, I'd walk into the room and they'd all scurry to the other group. <clears throat> and then you would get the times where the people would scurry into your group 
And that sometimes meant that they would scurry into your group because you were the guy that didn't challenge them. You were the easy therapist. You were the one that they could just breeze by 90 minutes. And either way, just having experienced that for a while. That's interesting. That's one of those things where being popular might not be good. And being unpopular might not be bad. One of the things I appreciate about your podcast and sort of the intro is you say something like, you know, how, how does this work? You know, we're going to kind of explore how this thing called psychotherapy works. And it, it, it's something that group group, I think you're better able to realize if it worked or didn't, because you can sense the group and their engagement in the group and the work that gets done in the group. But I can't tell you how many times that I've You know, the feedback in group is I'm usually the last person to walk out and I'm following patients. And how many times that I could tell you that I felt that I just crushed this group, that that group was amazing. And I've followed patients out of the group who are talking to one another and say, couldn't wait for that group to be over. That was terrible. And on the contrary, how many groups I've walked out of where I've been like, oh, you know, we didn't really do much in there. And and I've heard feedback when they're talking to one another saying like, that was the best group all week. And understanding what about the group and what about why am I so off on my experience of what just took place in that 90 minutes and what others felt took place. And you just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that there's a science around it. I think, you know, people's takeaway is so different and their perspectives are so different that I really am intrigued by what 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 about that worked? What about that didn't work? Because I still swing and miss a lot. And my perception on like that was a that was a great group or that wasn't a great group is still off. It's still off from time to time. You know, for me, there were two major shifts in the course of my career around group work that significantly impacted my ability to do it at different levels. And the first one was earlier on where I finally learned, I I don't have another way to articulate this, except to say that there was a point where I finally learned how to forget about myself. I stopped, I guess that lack of self-consciousness where you see yourself as like, I am separate from everything else that's happening in here and it's all eyes on me and I'm being evaluated and I have to perform and my performance is going to be judged as either good or bad and every word that comes out of your mouth is like pre-edited with is this a cool thing to say how'd that go did they like that did that sound smart did I sound like a fucking idiot you know and eventually all that just stopped and I, I just kind of learned how to be there just do what I'm doing without overthinking and thinking about it and worrying about it. That was one level. And the other one was I learned that I had a great difficulty with emotionality in large groups of people like that. And that I, I wasn't, I don't think I brought an energy that allowed for extreme emotions, sadness, things like that. I think the idea of it was uncomfortable because I was afraid that if we experienced that, I might cry. I might get uncomfortable. I might get really sad. And so I think I would diffuse that with other things like making jokes or breaking tension with certain things and 
losing those those potential moments to bring it to that next level. And I think like as a as a person as I matured and I got in touch with that barrier and learned to move past it and become comfortable with vulnerability, comfortable with the idea that if we talk about this and we go into this and this person emotes, I might do it too. I might have like this empathy response where I might, these people might see me cry. All 10 of these guys, some of them have like tattoos on their faces and shit. They're going to, they might see me cry. It's going to feel weird. And then getting comfortable with that. And once I got comfortable with that, then anything was possible. And I found like um, the ability to, the experience of having like big breakthroughs in groups where people would emote, that became something I would actually look for. Like you wanted it. And if you didn't get it, it almost felt like you you missed, you know? And it's almost like a, it's an endorphin release to be in that experience. And I, you know, then I found myself chasing after it a little bit, if I'm being honest. So you learned if every single one of these groups is magic, then none of them are magic, you know? So, you know, there are some that are just going to be, you know, hopefully productive discussions. And then there are others that are going to be like expansive breakthroughs. And, and you learn how to temper that. And I think those were the two big things, like learning how to be less self-conscious and realize what's going on in there is not really about me so much. And I don't have to worry about it. And two, to be really, un- really comfortable with people's, to be vulnerable enough to model that for people that we can talk about really sad things or really uncomfortable things and that's okay and it's okay if like emotion is demonstrated that th- those are we should do that here i really i relate to, to both of those po- points and i you know definitely experience both of those and and i think it, again the analogy of the wave is you know there were definitely times where like i said where you know, you learned how to get someone started on a certain emotional, vulnerable track, but then really struggled with kind of my own discomfort around, well, well, now I got them there. Now what do I do with that? And in a way, playing defense on that consciously at times to say, well, they probably will need to go in this direction or want to go in this direction, but... I'm not really equipped to deal with when they get there. So uh, let's, let's, you know, let's harness it a bit. Um, and just allowing the group and the wave to kind of go where it's going to go. And sometimes that is, you know, sometimes, you know, trying to force the emotion isn't going to work and it's not going to be beneficial. And sometimes playing defense on the emotion is certainly not going to be helpful. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from just kind of understanding yourself and understanding why it is that you're not going in these certain directions. And that's self, that's ultimately self-awareness. That's being, you know, aware of what, you know, what's going on with you and the transference or counter-transference and, uh, and not allowing that to negatively affect the work that you do. That's it applies to group and, and all, and all other forms. I think that's a big, thing you know you you really if you spend enough time around other therapists especially if you work in an institutional environment it becomes really evident who has done their own work and who has not you know when you're dealing with somebody who has like a lot of unresolved stuff and is very easily triggered by clients or 
it just uncomfortable in certain situations that some of it is just, you know, the technical acumen of having to learn a skill, which there's a lot to learn to be effective. And the other half of it is, am I resolved in myself? Like, am I comfortable with myself? Am I comfortable in my own skin with who I am and where I am that I can come in here and have these interactions with people? Right. Yeah. Without taking everything personal, without getting defensive, without having to prove yourself, overcompensating, you know, I think. And and again, I, I, I don't know that there's much training that's better than just the experience of having to swing and miss a bunch of times or not swing at all and learning how to do it and finding your sweet spot um because you know there are certainly times earlier on more so where i'm very reactive and you know very reactive and people disrespect well this person disrespected me well i think now you know there's a level of of uh resolve where you know i'm not going to be reactive to someone being disrespectful you know someone you know doing something that they shouldn't be doing and and i think that that finding yourself in power struggles in in the group in particular because if you want to get into a power struggle with someone in this setting more than likely they're going to have about eight other people who are going to be, be backing them up against against you yeah, it's a it's a it's a strange thing creating competition, you know, with clients. And it's a a bad trap to get into. It's, it's a bad Yeah, it's a bad trap to get into when you're starting to look at this from the perspective of I need to win this debate. Like I need to I if I lose, if I take a loss here, I'm going to lose some standing or footing in this community and it can affect me. It can affect my, you know, when ultimately no one's really going to remember this interaction all that much necessarily. Unless of course I flip out in which case the therapist flipped out and that will be memorable. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's happened. Um, but you know, it's, someone said to me, an alumni from, from years ago made that gave me feedback um, just recently about, you know, he said, I, I don't remember much of treatment in terms of like my individual sessions. And it, 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 it I said, I remember group, I remember group and that's what stands out. And that's where I remember doing the majority of my work. And it's just, you know, I think again, it's something that's, you know, being memorable in a negative way, but I think, how do you create something? Cause again, these are people that sometimes have three days sober you know so their head is still in the clouds and they're still going through withdrawal in some situations post-acute withdrawal definitely and how do you make an impact on somebody to where you know sitting there for an hour and having an hour of psychotherapy is likely not they're probably not even gonna remember it tomorrow uh, let alone have it impact them. They're just trying to get by. They're just trying to accept the fact that they're in treatment and still in the contemplation contemplation stage of change to where, you know, all the stories from alumni typically go towards the group process and 
things in the group process that were memorable to them, that stood out to them, that impacted them in, you know, in a, say, describe it as like an abrupt way to where it lasted, it stuck. And that often doesn't happen just through gen, you know, general discussion, you know? So how do you make an impact on these patients who don't want to be there, don't want to be impacted, you know, are angry that they're there, that, you know, maybe they're considering whether or not they should or shouldn't change. And I think that is why I've stayed in this setting that I'm in now for so long is because it, there is such a reward when someone can get from where they come in to where they might be now to say they didn't want help. They didn't want help. They didn't want to change. They were angry for the entire time over the first couple of months because their parents are forcing them to be there. And through the work that was done, not only did they start to want to change, they successfully changed. And that, I mean, that's something that um, I don't imagine is going to be there nearly as much in other settings. That's one of the magical things about residential programs, especially good ones that are longer term you have the opportunity for these intense interactions where people feel safe enough to have them. And then there's the structured support around you to continue that it's safe, you know, people to talk about and process afterwards. You know, there was one thing that we talked about <clears throat> a little earlier. I kind of wanted to come back to because the thing you had said about when we were talking about counter-transference and people, you know, working through their own kind of stuff to become better in uh, working with clients, better at group facilitation. And it's a thing that you have to really learn from experience. It can't necessarily be taught. And the other thing I would say is that it's really good to have peers and mentors and people like that to reflect back to about your process, especially if you had an interaction that for you kind of like went sideways, because those could be really powerful experiences. Like no one likes the feeling of bombing per se, or, you know, having some big intervention fall flat or having a group of people just kind of like turn on you as though you did something really bad in the group and being able to have an honest conversation with another professional where you could talk about, hey, I did this thing and it happened and it re really went sideways. Was I wrong what I did? And what does it say about me? Does it say that I'm inept? Does it say that I'm unbalanced? Does it say that, you know, or does it just say that I work in a treatment center? You know, what, is it, what does it say about me? Because those moments if they're not processed correctly, they can really rattle confidence and then cause overcompensation, like you talked about, more mistakes. Right. Right. So I think that's it. And you know, to my point before, I, I really do, in a lot of ways, I'm happy, not only for you, but really for the people who get to be supervised by you, because to be able to learn from someone at this level who has put that much energy into being really good at doing groups and doing therapy and to be able to get supervision uh, and mentorship 
that's a uh, that's quite a gift. I mean, that can really shape your whole career. Getting that kind of guidance early on, I right. think. No, thank you. I mean, that's it's nice of you to say. It's been, <clears throat> I think, similarly to you know any shift in roles. It, it was ten years of of uh, of the role I was in prior. So there's certainly, I think, some of that transition brings up some of the transition of first starting is something different. It's something new. Um, you know, and I hope I'm not taking my lumps like I did when I first started as a primary therapist, but, um, it's a, it's an adjustment that I imagine is, you know, still I'm in the, in the transition phase of to really understand how to help other clinicians, how to give them, supervision that that they need um uh so you know I, I'm still there i wonder how much overlap there is between the skills that made you effective in group therapy and you know when you work with clients there and the same if the same skill set applies to supervising clinicians I, I, and you know what? I don't, I don't know. I, I'd imagine that some are and some aren't. And I think, again, I think there's been times in supervision where I have that insight of, you know, this is not a, this is not a therapy session. You know, am I in some way turning this clinical supervision into a therapy session? Because quite frankly, that's my comfort zone. Um, you know, and I've actually, I've heard a lot of, heard people talk about supervision and effective supervision isn't turning it into a therapy session. So I have to be aware of that. So I think there has been swings and misses and I, I think I'm still finding my wheelhouse within what is going to be helpful, uh, for the team. Um, it's probably going to continue to happen that way. It's a tough balance because on what you could be in a meeting with, uh, you know, a, a therapist who is on one hand processing, like, hey, there's an interaction. I'm having strong counter transference with this client because they are, you know, remarkably similar feelings that come up to me. They remind me of like my interactions with my father that were, you know, not positive. And you transition from something like that to, and we really got to get up to speed on your documentation. That's a straight, that's an, it could be like an awkward segue. Man. Yes, which has happened many times. It, yeah. And I think, again, it's like, some, you know, what, what I said before about, about your podcast and how does this work? I still really feel like, you know, there's a lot to, there's so much to learn for me to learn in terms of how this works, why this works, why, what works even in, in what I do. I think there's some awareness that at times it has worked, it has been effective, but if you ask me what in terms was effective about it, I, I, the honest answer is I don't know. I, you know, I, it was going in a direction that, that worked. And so, so to supervise a process that at the end of the day is, you know, there's still so much to understand and to learn about why this thing works. You know, one of the, the quotes that I was thinking about is you know, Carl Jung's quote about, you know, know the theories and master the techniques, but to help a human soul, you need to be just another human soul. And, you know, so how do you, when you're, when you're providing therapy, how do you 
how do you supervise or teach someone to be a human soul and to and to connect to another human soul? And I've even wondered with you know all the techniques and all the theories that are so important to this process to know. But you know, I believe I helped people very much when I didn't know the theories that I know and when I didn't have the technique that I have. And I think maybe because back then. You know, I leaned more on just simply being a human soul in a room with another human soul and trying to connect those two. And there's the healing process that goes on just in that. And sometimes when you get more sophisticated and know more theories and you're uh, sometimes I wonder if that takes me away from just being a human soul. You know, there's a thing that happens and I have to remind myself uh, with with all that technique and all that stuff, there was a time when you were really new at this, <laughs> and you felt like you were just fortunate that there was some client that was willing to talk to you. Yeah, and you, you probably helped that person, all right? I tried. I tried. I kind of sucked back then, but I, I, I did my best. I always did my best. You know, it's funny that you said that about the uh, the Carl Jung quote, because it is, it does ring true with everything else that you've said here today, which is that so much of what you're doing with people is actually instinctive, even though it's not necessarily intention, like intentional, like you don't have an end in mind necessarily, but that you're kind of following some sort of value system that guides you instinctively to maintain a lot of attention and tension in these areas that could be very uncomfortable to discuss. And that that's clear. I think that's the answer to the, the question yeah and that probably you know applies individually as well but i think like you said i think the the the, the genuine <clears throat> the genuine approach is if we're sitting here is me being genuinely interested in in how you operate and how and 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 what your issues are and and figuring out why you're having all these issues, why you are carrying around all this pain and suffering and why you're self-destructing in a way that most of the patients are, are when they enter into treatment. And I, in me learning about why all those things are taking place, again, you're learning, you're learning too. You're becoming curious about yourself. And, and most patients aren't self-aware. There's too many blind spots. There's too many walls and defenses up for them to really understand why they're doing so so we're learning together and in learning together we're being two human souls and we're connecting and we're learning about you and 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 i think that's that's a really powerful process um you know particularly in in, in the group you know david um when i asked you to come and do this with me i had this idea of what we might talk about and what i hope to kind of like illuminate about group therapy and about your process and hope that it would we would get that and and i i kind of feel like we really did so it's been very gratifying and i really appreciate you um coming out and being willing to do this it meant a lot to me and i i felt like the experience of it was was phenomenal it's fantastic to have you here so i appreciate you coming and um also like you know grateful to the folks at karen and stuff for allowing you to come and do this and and everything i thought it was really cool so it's been great having you man and i, I no, appreciate it's it it's it, i i really appreciate it. and and i'm always grateful to have you um the work that 
you know, to have you really being the, you know, the, the, the person that comes in each week to do what is a very difficult, complicated group, uh, and grief and loss. Um, there's just a level of comfort that I feel knowing that you're in charge of that, that you, you know, you're the one coming in and do this group and the patients that are in that group have nothing but positive things to say and the work that gets done in there. It's very comforting to know that you, that you're there. And, uh, I just, I respect you greatly. Wow, man. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. See, this is one of those moments that I talked about where I would normally say something weird and Baba Booey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where I would, where I would, where I would blow it to, uh, break up the tension. But instead, I think I'm just going to try to absorb that tremendous compliment and allow it to land and, you know, be comfortable with that. You said that, man. Yeah. So, so we're always modeling for the people. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but thank you again for coming in, David, on a, on a Saturday afternoon. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You're welcome.